Um, yeah, so as you notice, I'm not Chris. Um, I'm, I'm Nick, and I'm that young kid who met him at Canyon Creek, which I'll be going back to in a little bit. Um, they go to SF State, not USF. Um, but <laughs> just had to check on that one real quick. Um, but yeah, like Chris said, we're going to be going through John 3.16 today, and it's a very familiar verse, and if you haven't heard it, I will be utterly surprised. But before we begin, I'm going to read this entire text, um, and we're going to pray. The reason I want to go through this whole text is because I believe there's a the large misunderstanding of John 3.16 that is caused by a misunderstanding of the context it's in. Um, and if you've heard it put on billboards or walls or signs or in books or on t-shirts, you've seen it as this independent summary of the gospel, that John 3.16 exists alone, that it is the loneliest verse because in that verse tells the whole sin, tells the whole thing. It doesn't need anything else, but that's just not true. So I'm going to read this, and uh, then we'll pray, and then I'll get into it. This is John 3, 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. Before I begin, notice the irony of that. A ruler coming to visit Jesus in fear and in shame. Hold on to that because it means something. And said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, and in the Bible, truly, truly, is said by Jesus to, um, to state an absolute truth, something that is an indisputable fact about the world. So he's saying this, not just about Nicodemus, but of everybody. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, there it is again, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now before I go to John 3.16, if you don't know what that story, what that verse is talking about, there is a section in Numbers 21 where the people of Israel are wandering with Moses in the wilderness. And they're starting to get angry with God and with Moses because they don't feel like they have enough food or provisions, and they feel like his leadership is failing they're a doubting church. They're a church of doubting, and they're doubting their leader and their God. And so God puts serpents among them, but he tells Moses that if you lift up a brass serpent, anybody who looks on the serpent, that's vitally important, anybody who looks onto the serpent will live, but anybody who does not will die. So notice the similarity here. It ends with that, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And it goes on, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, I pray that you would be in and among us this morning, that you would inhabit us, and that you would be with us, Lord, that you would open our eyes to your word, the truth of the word, and fill us with the Spirit. Lord, forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for they are many, and let us see Jesus in him only. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the story. Jesus meets Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, if you didn't catch it, he makes an absolute fool out of himself. But that's not the focus of this whole text, and the focus is John 3.16, which I said earlier has a massive misunderstanding around it, that people just don't really get what it means in the context of Scripture. Don't get me wrong, we understand what it says, it's, it's clearer than anything else, but its place in the Scripture is often misunderstood. And I believe that this is true, not because... People just don't look at the context because it's, it's a difficult truth to come to. I believe a lot of people write their own endings. So I'm going to tell you a story that uh, makes me glad I go to the school I go to. Um, I should illustrate this a bit. There was a Princeton French literature class. And don't ask me how I know that this exists. But um, there was a French literature class whose final exam was to translate an old French folktale by the name of Little Red Riding Hood. And if you don't know the story... Um, this story is Little Red Riding Hood is walking through the woods to grandmother's house, and she has food and medicine, and on the way, a wolf stops her who wants to eat her. And so instead of just doing it outright, he says, okay, stop and pick flowers, and he goes to grandmother's house. He puts on grandmother's clothes and locks her in the closet. And then she gets over there, and she's, she draws way too close to this wolf, and out of nowhere, this lumberjack comes in and scares the wolf away. That's the story that we know. There is no lumberjack in the French story. In the French story, everybody dies in the end, which is how all, you know, all stories end. But, um, <laughs> but everybody dies in the end. And so when these students got their exam and they were told to translate this entire story, to their horror when they got to the end of it, there was no, there was no lumberjack. So they panicked. And then the grades came back and they noticed a surprising number of students failed because they wrote in the original ending. On a, black, on a stroke of tremendously poor judgment, they wrote in something that just wasn't there. We do this all the time with John 3.16. And to get around to this, I want to look at how Nicodemus does it, because he does it too. And I want to look specifically at the first, um, first few verses of John 3. And uh, there's a tradition among successful people. And we know Nicodemus is a successful person because he's a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. Now, in the context of that time, they were the social elite, the religious elite, the religious authority. So they control the entire society. Because society is wrapped around the Jewish religion and they control the religion. So he was an elite, but he came to Jesus by night. And when one successful person meets another, and this tradition still exists, it's to compliment one another. So the successful person comes up to him and he tries to give him a compliment. When you give a compliment, you expect one in return. So he says, so he says to him, Jesus, I know you're a man from God because um, we've conferred and we've seen that someone who does these works must be from God. So we've decided it. And I can just imagine him sitting there looking at Jesus, waiting for a compliment, doing, you know, one of these guys, maybe a spin around, just, just to give him the full picture. But 
I want to point out something specific of this entire text here. Um, he says, I know you're a man of God. And Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And notice throughout the entire text of John 3, 1 to 21, the balance between knowledge and sight. It happens first there, then it happens again. We bear witness to what we've seen, and we, we only speak of what we believe, knowledge and sight again. And then with the story of Moses, anyone who looks on the serpent will be saved. And then with John three sixteen, anyone who believes will be saved. And then it moves on to talk about dark and light. So we see through this whole text, the knowledge and sight seem to be synonymous. The words are different, but the function is exactly the same. So when Nicodemus comes to him and he says, I know you were a man of God, he's really saying, I see that you were a man of God. So Nicodemus comes out to Jesus in the middle of the night and says, Jesus, I can see, and Jesus says, you're blind. It's this complete turnaround right away. And it's this, this message Jesus gives particularly offensive to a Jew. Because Jews in this time believed, look, salvation is because of my heritage. I'm a Jew, so I deserve this. And Jesus says, no, one, you can't see me, and two, you're not born again. So you don't have salvation at all. The fact of this is, Nicodemus says, look, I can see you. Takes one to know one. I can see you're a man of God because I am one. And Jesus says, you're blind. You can't see at all. But this is the trick here. In his blindness, he mistakes his blindness. You can see by the questions he keep, keeps asking. His impression is not that Jesus is the son of God. His impression is that Jesus is speaking way above him. He just doesn't get it. He's just not intellectually clicking with what Jesus is saying. He says, how can these things be? And he asks, should I enter my mother's womb and be born again? Which, you know, I can't know for sure, but it seems kind of sarcastic to me. It seems like he's, he seems like he's trying to wrap around Jesus intellectually like he would with his colleagues, like he would with other successful people. And we could stop there and we could say, well, Nicodemus is just a fool, but I don't think that's the case. I don't think that people who are fools, and there are many, I don't think that people who are fools are denied entry to the gospel because that is the specific demographic to who Jesus preaches and the specific demographic who arrives at Christ. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> but Nicodemus isn't a fool by our standard context. He's a Pharisee, which means he studied a lot, and he's a ruler of the Jews, and you don't get there by luck. You get there because someone told you you're there. So, that, that can't be why he's not misunderstanding. That can't be why he's not understanding Jesus. That's not the reason. And to explain this, I would, I'm going to assert that John 3.16 is definitely connected to the entire rest of the text. That it is, there is no break. In the original text, there is no separation between chapter and verse here. So right after it talks about Moses, it talks about John 3.16, and it goes right into it. And I know that also because John 3.16 is also particularly offensive to Jews. For God so loved the whole world. A Jew would say, no, 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 he just loves the Jews. That whoever believes, no, 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 only Jews can believe. Only Jews, it's particularly offensive. And it ties in exactly with the tone that Jesus is going for. That you're blind. For God so loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever should believe will not die but have eternal life. If I could take a slight break from Nicodemus here, I'm going to make a claim and and, and to gamble on this one, that I would gamble that if you're a skeptic or you believe you're a good person, you're probably not all that impressed with God's love. You're probably not all that impressed with God so loved the world. If you're a skeptic, you can look around you and say, well, I look at the state of the world, I look at the wars that are going on, the poverty, what happened to a family member of mine, what a Christian said to me, and there's no way God's love can be that good. Or there's no way he actually loves us that much. Or if you're a good person, you might stand over here and say, well, of course he loves me, what's not to love? It's not to love. Why wouldn't God love me? The fact is, I, 
Again, the text doesn't say it, but I could gamble again that Nicodemus probably felt that way before he came into contact with Jesus because he probably thought he was a good person, and it seems a little bit like he's skeptical of Jesus too. That he's not all that, all that impressed with the way things are going. So I believe that mistake is made we either think that God doesn't love the world because the way things are, or God doesn't love the world because, you know, who wouldn't love me? So it's not a stretch. Um, I think that's an intellectual error. I think it's an intellectual error because we approach John 3.16 as intellectuals. And even if you wouldn't proclaim yourself a skeptic or a good person, I think every Christian carries traits of both. That maybe I'm not impressed with my day and maybe I don't feel like God loves me today. Or maybe I do something great and I feel like, well, of course God loves me. I just did a lot for him, so why wouldn't he? That's just, that's just logic. It's an intellectual mistake, and it's the same mistake that Nicodemus keeps making with Jesus. Is he thinks everything Jesus is saying to him is intellectual. That it doesn't affect him, it's just a concept to grasp. But it goes on. The text doesn't end here. Because people ignore the before John 3.16, but they also ignore the latter verses following it. So if we read John 3.19-20, we're met with an uncomfortable and particularly uncomfortable truth. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. It's not a matter of intellectual blindness or intellectual failure to understand the gospel, that people don't come to the gospel. We have trouble communing with God. That's not it at all. The trouble is not that we don't get the gospel. It's that we can't Stand the idea of a God who makes commands about what you have to do every day with your life. It's because it's so difficult to wrestle that our failures aren't intellectual. It's that we just don't want someone telling us what to do. You see, this text is targeted specifically at these skeptics and good people. Sinners want to keep sinning. Good people don't want to be exposed. That's just the fact of the matter. And if you're a Christian, it's not that you just don't get enough gospel, that you're finding that you can't get up from your sin, it's that, and I know this because I've known this process too well, is that we build relationships with our sin. We develop loves for our sin. And it's not intellectual blindness that's our problem, it's moral blindness. And it's fair to define this term because I'm going to use it a lot more. Moral blindness in the way is saying that you're ignoring the code of morals that's going on within the gospel because your sin is important to you. Because that loving your sin is a vital key of life that if I can just keep that, I can justify it. That if I have a relationship with my sin and I keep loving it, therefore I can, I can somehow make this fit into my life. And it's killing us. It's killing us, sometimes very slowly and sometimes very quickly. And we've seen it with everybody, and we ought to see it in ourselves. Because the fact is, at some level, and I hold this true, there's been a lot of addiction in my family, but and the thing that's true about every single one is that at some level, the addict loves their sin. At some point in time, at some, at some, you know, they can go through the whole day saying, well, no, I, won't, I won't, don't do that anymore. That's not me. But at some point, right before, right before you sin, well, it's okay this time because I've been good for a while. It's okay this time because I've had a rough week. It's okay this time because it feels good. So you see how that loving of the sin, the loving of it, again, produces that justification, makes us blind to the moral parameters of the Christian world. And we have to stop. Because it doesn't have to be that way. Not at all. Not at all. The first step to understanding all of this is to reject the idea that our failures are due to our intellectual blindness. Now, 
I would definitely assert, and I've met people over the years that are surely intellectually blind. That is not why they cannot come to the gospel. That is never a reason not to come to the gospel, and it's never a functioning um, process of not coming to the gospel. Well, I can't be a Christian because it just doesn't make sense to me. I can't be a Christian because it's just, it doesn't make any sense at all to anybody. I don't know why anybody believes it. The fact of the matter is, it's not that we don't have problems intellectually, but those problems aren't the cause of our alienation. Those problems aren't the cause of our alienation. Learning and growing is a process of being a Christian, but those problems with understanding don't push us to the edge of the kingdom and then kick us out. It's our moral blindness that does that. And we ought to acknowledge it. So the second step in this process of understanding our moral blindness is to acknowledge and confess it. And to do that, we have to be able to spot moral blindness because you might be a little confused of, well, how, how, do I, how do I practice this? Well, in pagans and in fallen Christians, the sheer sign is alienation. There's no pushback when it comes to loving the darkness. There's no, there's no spiritual battle going on. They love their sin, and they're going to stay, in it, and they're going to keep doing it. And that's the end. It's alienation. They'll just keep going further because there's nothing to pull them back. But it starts in Christians in this way. It starts with, and I, I hesitate to say the word cognitive dissonance, so I'm going to say moral dissonance in this way, that we, at some level, all Christians are fostering two sorts of love, a love for God and then a love for sin. And at a fundamental level, both of these beliefs cannot coexist. They don't coincide. Not at all. And this is the fact of it, that we, in order to solve this moral distance, we have to, we have to either get rid of one of the two beliefs, which is often too drastic for us. We, we alarm at the thought of, well, if I want to sin, I just, just get rid of God. That, I mean, that's immediately shocking. And I bet for years, several of us have been trying to just get rid of sin and find it's not working. But the other one, the one that unfortunately is used far more often is, well, I'll just make one of the two mild enough that I could keep living this way. Well, I'll just make my sin mild enough. I'll just, I'll sin in private. I won't tell anybody. I won't, I won't do the big ones. If I create my own moral rules and don't break those, then I can still live with Jesus, right? And the other side is, if I just make the gospel small enough that it doesn't tell me what to do, I can keep living my life. This is where I think the mistake is made with John 3.16. And this is why I think intellectual blindness is so poisonous, or the thought that intellectual blindness is our reason for alienation is so poisonous because it's what poisons John 3.16. Instead of saying, well, John 3.16 must be like John 3.15, that people who are sick and needy have to look to a God for help, it says, well, it says believe, so as long as I assent to the intellectual truth that Jesus existed and he died, I'm good. Have you ever heard that one before? I've heard it several times. As long as I just believe that he existed and did what he did, I can keep living my life, he can keep living his life, and when I die, we'll shake hands. And we'll be good to go. The fact it is, that life fades very quickly because you'll find that if you pick up the Bible, it directly conflicts <laughs> with all of it. With all of that. It's a scary reality, and on first glance, it makes us feel trapped. Well, if I love my sin and I can't fall out of love with it, and I want to love God, but I want to keep doing this one, and I'm facing conflict, and it's killing me inside, what do I do? Where do I turn? But at that point, that's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him will not die but have eternal life. The fact is this. I want to go back to Little Red Riding Hood just for a minute here. We, not be able, we, we can't write our own ending with this. But if you know John 3.16, there really is a lumberjack. 
You catch that? It really is a lumberjack. And God wrote in that ending that when we're little red and we draw too close to the wolf in people's clothing and our sin is killing us slowly because we love it so much, Jesus comes in. And you notice how the lumberjack comes out of nowhere? You notice how it doesn't give us any other information? That when we're totally alien, totally strange to Jesus, he comes out of nowhere. And John 3.16 comes in, we find out not only did he come to save us, but he died to do so. You learn about the suffering he went through for it. It's almost as if the lumberjack came in and put itself in the wolf's mouth so that we could run away. The crazy thing is he meets us later. Something about the sacrificial love that pulls us out of our moral dissonance. And something about being born again that Jesus tells Nicodemus that we have to grasp onto. The whole thrust of this message is that you can't do it yourself. There's just no way. There's just no way for us to, to decide all of a sudden, well, I don't love my sin anymore. I don't love my bottle. I don't love, I don't love these, this group of people anymore. I don't, I, don't, I don't love my sex anymore. Well, I'm just going to be good now. If you've been trying that for a long time, I'm very sorry. It's not working. Because it won't ever work. The fact is, and Jesus says this to Nicodemus, who's likely very accustomed to doing things himself, Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Being born of the Spirit is the key to all of this. That, it's not a matter of us getting up together and saying, well, we'll just beat it. We'll just beat our sin and then we'll be good. It's a matter of giving ourselves up to the Spirit. It's a matter of giving ourselves up to this gospel. It's a matter of giving ourselves up to the fact that God loved the world. Because see, Belief is really as simple as that. It's not an intellectual assent. Um, faith isn't that, well, I just, I know, it's, I know it's real. If you ever need a guide to understand what John 3.16 is saying, go to the verse before, and you'll find the story of Moses in Numbers 21.9. The people were being poisoned and killed left and right by fiery serpents. I reckon you've had days where you felt like that. Like you are being tortured from all sides, bitten from every angle. It's not a big command. Look on Jesus, trust on Jesus, and you'll live. It's quite as simple as that. See, it's not a matter of solving your moral blindness yourself. It's not a matter of getting rid of the love of sin, but increasing your love for Jesus. See that change? And ever so slowly, the process of sanctification removes that love of sin from your life. But you'll find the more in love with Jesus you are, well, I'm not like that anymore. I don't love that sin anymore. I'm breaking off that relationship and we're starting to draw closer and closer and closer to Jesus. Because you know what? His love for us is greater than our love for sin. That's the truth. And you want to hold on to that. That His love for us is greater than our love for sin. So if you're a sinner and you know it, look at Jesus and eternal life is yours. If you're a sinner and you know it, when you drink this wine and eat this bread, eternal life is yours. That when you say the Apostles' Creed, saying, I believe, it's not just that you're assenting to the truth, it's that you depend on the truth. You depend on the fact that God the Father is almighty. You depend on the Holy Spirit working. You depend on Jesus Christ, the Son, suffered, died, and born again. So let's pray and then take communion. Father, we're sinners and we know it. We're sinners and we know it because you've, you've come to us out of nowhere and you loved us even when we loved our sin. You loved us so much that you died for us, Father, and so we, we need you. 
So we found that in a continued life with Christ, we must depend on you over and over again and have trust in you and turn away from the things that we love of this world. So Lord, I pray that you would bring the Spirit and help us in that this week and next week and the weeks to come. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and love and for your Son. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.